Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you DBC advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, the other day uh, I came out and my bicycle was still locked to the thing, but but the, the tires had been removed from the bicycle. You know how this can happen sometimes? They're like, well, we can't steal the whole bike. Might as well steal the tires. Sure. Um. And now I'm working tirelessly to try and catch the guy who did it. I don't know. Wait, did this really happen? No. <laughs> so, so in addition to in addition to inventing a crime, which I will remind you is itself a crime, you committed a further crime by not even really having a punchline. I did. I'm working tirelessly because I don't have tires. But even as you said away. it. I you know. pulled your own punch. I, you were like, oh, I already <laughs> dislike this one. I'm tired. I yeah. am tired in one yeah. way, which is that yeah. daylight savings happened this morning. And so I, I don't have it. That spark is gone at the moment. So right. I, I want someone to steal my tires so that I can not be tired anymore. Is that good? Did, did I get no, something? That's also bad. But I will say, I'm glad that you brought up daylight savings time, Hank, because <laughs> The uh, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, best known for previously his previous job, which was the head coach of the Auburn University college football team. I'm not making this up. United States Senator Tommy Tuberville has proposed a law that would enshrine the daylight savings time time as the time all year round. And this is a very notable Moment Mm -hmm. in American history, Hank, because it marks the first time that Tommy Tuberville and I have ever agreed about anything. (laughs) We disagreed about Auburn football, (laughs) and then we we disagreed quite extensively about politics. A a lot of other things. But suddenly, I find myself Team Tuberville. Uh, Well, I wouldn't go that far, John, but it is important to note that people can agree on some things while disagreeing deeply on other things. And one of the great things to agree on is that this whole thing is a bad idea. I I tweeted about how confused I was about what I should be doing 
to try and get my son on the right schedule before this happened. I completely failed, and we had a very bad morning this morning. But we, uh, somebody asked in response to that, which would you, which do you want though? Do you want to be on daylight savings all the time, or be on not daylight savings all the time? And I was like. I just wanted to stop changing. Whichever we're on when we pass the law is fine. (laughs) Like, don't make this hard. Don't like this is why making things happen is so difficult because we all want to fix the problem, but we all disagree on how to fix the problem. But in this case, no, there's there's two choices. All solutions are better than the current solution. They were equally good. Yeah. Which is yeah the uh, only the only bad. So whatever everyone else thinks is what I want. The only bad outcome here is some kind of weird compromise outcome where instead of changing the clock twice a year, we start changing it like twelve <laughs> times a year. Yeah. Where, you know, like the bill makes its way through committee and it gets some amendments and then it passes and suddenly we're like, oh, man, it turns out every 13th, no matter what, we have to change the clocks. Yeah. And to a half hour. There are some places where it it is to a half hour. And I'm just like, you cannot. You cannot do this. It's unjust. Mm, It is. It truly is. I um, I want to stick with time zones. I don't want to get rid of those. We should still have time zones. Yep. Look, time is malleable, but it's not that malleable. I I, don't, right. I I think the clocks need to stop being abused. I agree. I I don't think that it's the biggest problem the world faces. <laughs> no, but it's the easiest one to solve. Exactly. It, the <laughs> easiest one to solve is to stop minting the American penny. The second easiest one to solve mm. is to stop changing yeah. the clocks for no reason. I think now that the pandemic has gotten us pretty cashless, uh, the, yeah. getting rid of the penny is going to get a lot easier. It's it's just kind of going to happen. Like, yeah. <laughs> even, if, even if the mint doesn't enshrine it as law, people are just going to sort yeah. of mass. Stop asking for them. Quit. Yeah. This is how a lot of change actually happens. Uh, but John, do you want to. It's true. Do you want to do uh, some questions from our listeners? The whole I thing do. of the podcast? And if you don't mind, I'd like to begin with our new segment oh. this week in Frozen Cold Hot Takes. Okay. Where Hank and I. I like it. Analyze yeah. the issue of the moment a few weeks too late. This question <laughs> came from Grace, but it could have come from any of the several hundred people who sent uh-huh. us the exact same question. Dear John and Hank, do you think that there are more wheels or doors in the world? Grace. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot, John, and it the what what this has outlined is that of yeah. course it depends greatly on how uh, expansive you want to be with your definitions. Not that greatly. No, it doesn't really, but but go on. So it so almost always it's wheels, but it becomes yes. doors mm-hmm. if and when you decide that an ion channel in a cell is a door. And some ion channels are very door-like where they just have like a little flap. It's all chemicals, a little flap that lets things in and then it closes to stop letting things in. And if that counts as a door, then it is doors. And there's one other way that it can be doors, John. And I want you, but do you want to, do you want to make your wheels case first? I mean, because that's I'm ludicrous. on team wheels. The idea that ions, the, I mean, that's ludicrous. The idea that doors within cells count as doors is ludicrous unless we are referring to prisons. Like, 
doors are doors. We all know what a door is and we all know what a wheel is. And I understand yeah. that we can debate whether a hot dog is a sandwich, but we cannot debate whether the question <laughs> referred to doors, like the kind that humans <laughs> open or even yeah. that dogs open. Yeah. At any rate, the answer is wheels. And what this whole debate has shown me, for those of you not on the internet, there's been a big debate over the last couple of weeks about whether there are more wheels or doors in the yeah. world. It is not close. There are more wheels, even in the places that people would cite as examples of why there might be more doors in the world. Like lots of people were like, what about hotels? Hotels have a lot of hotels have way more wheels so than they wheels. do doors, Hank. They oh, have yeah. the wheelie suitcases. They have the uh -huh. wheels of the uh, housekeeping carts. They have the wheels of the of the luggage carts. There's the wheels that are inside every drawer in every hotel room uh -huh. that will help those drawers open and close. So even in a purportedly door-centric environment, there are still more wheels. There are lots of wheels. It's very, like, the process is interesting to me. You ask people, and the first thing they think of is cars. Like, that's where most of the wheels are, which is just not true at all. There are but way even, more. But even if, like, it, even if it were true, there would still be more wheels to doors because there are a lot of two-doored cars and there are no two-wheeled cars. Those are called motorcycles and they have no doors. <laughs> well, this is the other thing. There are more bicycle wheels than car wheels. Of course there are. And you know what? Bicycles don't have doors. I did some research because of this question and found out that uh, only 20% of people in the world have a car. And that made me... Um, feel much more, what? It makes me feel terrible. Why? That you have a car? Yeah. We have two of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just, it just made me think, wow, I, uh, misunderstand how the world works, which I always do. And so it's, it was a, it was a stat that gave me a little bit of insight. John, do you want to know how we could make it doors? How could we make it doors, Hank? We just count the number of doors that are imaginary, that are in, imagined by human minds as doors. Like so the doors is of it a perception? Door if I just imagine a door, and can I, on my own, by yeah. imagining an infinite number of doors, yeah. make it doors? Well, no, because I'm over here imagining an infinite number of wheels. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but you're going to be so, asleep sometime, and I'm no, going to catch you. No, okay, so you could make it a tie. Right. This is how you make it a tie. You make it a tie by having an infinite number of doors and an infinite number of wheels, including like the wheels of time and the doors of perception. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's how it becomes a tie, because th those that's a countable infinity. It's the same size as another countable infinity. Mm hmm. But that's not the question. <laughs> the question is, are there more doors or wheels in the world here on Earth? And the answer is wheels. It's also possible that in some distant galaxy, there uh -huh. is some exoplanet <laughs> that's called planet Doropolis. And there's nothing yeah. but doors on the whole dang planet. But like, that's, all again, not, not a relevant issue to this question. <laughs> Yeah, I like all the people are doors and all their pets are doors and they sleep on doors. <laughs> their, their eyes are doors and they they have a door where their poop comes out of and their fingers are little doors. <laughs> it's a very right. creaky place. Just... <laughs>
It's like they have doors oh, and WD-40. Yeah. That's it. Right, right, right. Like, whereas we have like a high dependency on liquid natural gas, they're like, oh, God, we need a lot of WD-40 to make this yeah, joint we work. Need some more, we need some more lubrication. <laughs> I imagine them like coming to Earth, desperate, low on resources, barely able to like crack themselves open anymore, landing on Earth and like being just saying like, we need, we need... <laughs> Lube. <laughs> I, I thought that I was ready. I thought that I was, I thought that I'd, I'd predicted the joke accurately, and I hadn't. Um, <laughs> I lo- so this is what I love about Cole hot takes um, is that is that you think there's nothing left to say, but there is. Yeah. yeah. My may I I I have to tell you, Hank. It, it just showed me again that if you have an issue, and it doesn't matter what the issue is, it doesn't matter how ludicrous the issue is, if you have an issue that it is possible to take two sides of, a oh, yeah. sizable number of people will take both sides, even if one side is obviously wrong. Yeah. This, yeah, well, you, you side it up. And oh, uh, God, we love I, my, we love to take sides right now, especially on the internet. Uh, John, I got another opportunity. We love a side taking issue. I love I have another opportunity for for this. It's from Ashley who asks, Great. "Dear Hank and John, my friend and I were recently at a restaurant that is themed around space aliens. We mm. noticed a drawing of an alien on the wall, and he had two teeth, one on top, one on bottom. This raised the question: Why do we have individual teeth? Instead of just one big wide tooth on the top and bottom of our mouths. Is there an advantage to having small individual teeth? Or would having two very wide teeth actually be better for us? Asteroids and aliens, Ashley. Taboki and I talked about this for a solid 15 minutes. So Okay. Can I give you my guess? First, I'd like your thoughts. Yeah. My guess would be that the great thing about having multiple teeth is that if you Uh break one, it's not a catastrophe for the rest of them. Yeah, this is this definitely is a part of it. Uh, th- <laughs> so imagine that you crack a tooth. That's bad. That's a yeah. like that's a whole bad vibe. Imagine yeah. that you crack your tooth. <laughs> yeah. Uh and it's a big wide tooth and then like I don't know, like it just like the, the God, that sounds so painful. First of all, it- how do you how do you feel? How do you feel just before it's even broken? How do you feel about the idea of of your mono teeth? It's a good look. Yeah? Yeah. I like how it looks. Oh, yeah. I think it'd be a cool look. I think it would really <laughs> reshape humanity to just have like a band of bone exposed It'd be easier to bone. brush. Yeah. Huh? I mean, like, it'd be easier to brush. You wouldn't have to yeah. floss. Yeah. You wouldn't have to floss, which you is a big floss. advantage. There would be no opportunity to floss. There's nothing to floss, which I... There's nothing to floss. But... I might having... take that trade off. <laughs> Having broken a couple teeth in my day, I, if you multiply that pain times 18 or yeah. 24 or whatever, I do not <laughs> want to experience that. Like, I will floss every day for the rest of my life never to feel that. All right. I've never broken a tooth, but I feel like I, I can take your word for it. The other thing that we came up with is that your teeth fit kind of fit together when you when you close your jaw. Yeah. And that is probably in part due to the fact that they can float around a little bit to find their sort of best situation. And uh, and if they were one big monotooth, you might end up with like one of the cusps of one of your teeth not fitting right and it just being like less good to mm. chew. 
Mm-hmm. And then that might that might like be something that uh was selected for so that it it improved the ability of the bite to bite to have more yeah. teeth. I'm um, just but really... I think it's gotta it's gotta be mostly like you just want you want some backups. So if yeah. one goes bad, you got others around. Yeah, it's like having uh, you know, a fail safe built into your airplane. You want a right. backup system. And this isn't that weird though, because there are animals that kind of have two teeth, which is like everybody with a beak. Right. Two, two teeth. Right. Some animals have beaks and teeth, but we don't need <gasps> to get into them. What? Yeah. Well, now we do need to get into them because I don't know that. Oh, yeah. What do you mean some animals have beaks and teeth? Yeah, there's birds with teeth, Hank. Everybody knows that. Yeah, there's like, there's there's birds with like serrated beaks. Yeah. Like geese. Which are teeth, if you will. I guess they're kind of teeth. I guess they're kind of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> they're not teeth, but they're teeth. Let me read to you from the website... 10 amazing birds with teeth.com. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I definitely feel like they know more than I do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at some birds that it's difficult to argue that these birds don't have any teeth. <laughs> they don't have teeth like we have teeth, but yeah, oh God, they've got teeth. Now I'm starting to think that my definition of teeth is too expansive and or my definition of doors is inadequately expansive. I'm not sure if birds have teeth. Uh, categories are, don't make any sense. Let's move on to another question also about teeth. <laughs> this one comes from Paige who writes, Dear John and Hank, are there more teeth uh-huh. or more legs? Oh, no. <laughs> it's got to be, gotta be, it's be, gotta more, be legs. more legs. There's, it's not even close. Yeah. It's more legs. It's not even close. Yeah. It's got to be. In- I mean, insects. There's so many insects. Yeah. If you They're weighed everywhere. up all the humans and all of our livestock and all of the mammals on Earth, and then mm-hmm. you weighed up all the fish and whales and dolphins on Earth, it would weigh yep. less than all the insects. That's wild. Is that do you have that one confirmed? Is that from a is that from a reputable source? I'm not saying it sounds completely plausible. I'm not. I'm not saying you're wrong. Yeah, they have the largest biomass of any of the terrestrial animals. It's possible. Um, I've, if you added fish in, maybe not. But hey, who knows? Yeah, it's close. It, it It's relatively close. But I think insects have all mammals, livestock, and fish outweighed wow. by just a little bit. Uh, I believe it. And and look, they have like six legs minimum. Yeah. So it's got to be legs. Or I guess, yeah, yeah, six legs minimum. Uh, yeah. And and we got a lot of teeth, but there's not very many of us. And some fish have a lot of teeth, but there's so and but there's a there's so many like per bi- unit of biomass of like fish. There's way more individual insects, and they all have at least six legs apiece. It's got to be legs. That was easy. Yeah. Unless it's the legs that I'm imagining. I'm just going to imagine a lot of teeth. Can I tell you some more? Infinite teeth? Can I tell you some more fun biomass facts? Sure. Fungi Uh outweigh all animals combined. Wow. Insects, fish, mammals, everything. And insects. And fungi plus animals plus all the spiders weigh 
about spiders or animals one third as much as all the bacteria. This is this is yes. We do not have a great conception of how much of the Earth is composed of bacteria, <laughs> which <laughs> which is a lot of of the living living stuff. Bacteria outweigh animals by a factor of thirty five. Yeah, this is just for clarity. It's disgusting. It's just dis- we if are, you are confused. We are covered in them. This is not individuals. This is by mass. Oh right, there's no. <laughs> Yeah, there's no individual, there's no like single staff bacterium out there that's like pumping iron, weighing 650 pounds and being like, someday, someday I'm going to be Mr. Universe. No, of course, it's all of them combined, but there's a ton of them. Uh, yeah. There's so many of them. Yeah. Oh, all right. I'm down the rabbit hole. What's They're what's... mostly in the ocean. Oh, yeah. Is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, up to half of all oh. bacteria die every 48 hours. John, this next question comes from Audrey, who asks, Dear Hank and John, moon not cold? <laughs> That's the whole question. Um, the M is not capitalized, but all the other ones are. Oh. So oh. Audrey, Audrey turned on caps locks, yeah. but then a hit shift to make the M small. Moon sometimes cold. Moon sometimes cold. Very cold. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes very hot. Rarely, rarely super pleasant. Uh, no, uh, you have to be in the right place at the right time for it to be a good temperature. Uh, regardless of the temperature, there's no air. So that's, and that's part of why moon's so hot and moon's so cold. Yeah. Is that there's nothing to hold on to the hot or the cold on yeah. the moon. Do you know why moon's so hot, John? Because there's no atmosphere and sun's shining on it. <laughs> this is the sunshine. I think people get, like, the, the, the popular media has done us dirty and made us think that you freeze when you go out into space. This is true almost everywhere in space, but not where we are. So we are in a weird spot in space yeah. where we're close, very close to a star. Yeah. Almost all of space is very far away from a star, so it's quite cold. But we're very close to a star, so it's very hot as long as you're in the sun, uh, which is also true um, you know, in like Florida and stuff. But uh, there's nothing but to— much less true, just to be clear. <laughs> like— <laughs> Because of the magic, hotter in the sun, uh, the magic of an okay. atmosphere. But yes, it is That's hotter right. in the sun than it is not in the sun. Correct. And uh, so, yeah, it's it, it, there isn't a lot of stuff to get heated up. But where there is stuff, like you know, the surface of the moon, the surface of your skin, the surface of the space station, all these things have to worry a lot about being sometimes very cold and sometimes very hot because the the day on the Daytime on moon is like two weeks long, and then nighttime would be two weeks long. Mm. So you kind of got a you got a period where things have plenty of time to heat up to their maximum heat, and then they radiate away some of their energy as infrared radiation, and that's why it doesn't sort of get infinitely hot. And then uh, you got plenty of time to cool down on the opposite side of that. Whereas the and the astronauts had to stay cool the whole time because when they went up for the Apollo missions, they were in the day the whole time. Mm. They did not want to have them be in the night because that makes things harder. Yeah. I'm pretty sure nobody nobody was on the moon at the night, but I, now I'm not positive. So don't quote me on that. I like thinking about the fact that when I see the moon at night, even though it looks like the moon is shining down on me, and that's something we talk about, moonlight, moonshine. Mm-hmm. In fact, the sun is shining and it's just reflected. The moon is reflecting the sun's light toward me. So it is in fact like, evening sunlight or evening sunshine. Mm-hmm. I think that's really lovely. 
Yeah, and even during the day when you see the moon, that's sun- sunlight bouncing off the moon. The moon is very dark, too, so it's just a lot of sunlight sitting in. Yeah. So anyway, moon not cold, except for half the time when moon's super cold. Yeah. <laughs> it's confusing. Uh, I yeah, mean, it is a little counterintuitive, you know, because it, yeah. the moon looks cold. In the same way that Mars looks hot. It just does. Yeah, that's also confusing, for sure. And Mars, Mars cold. Mars always cold. Mars always cold. Mars can get colder or hot hotter, but it's always cold. Hey, we have another science question from Addie who writes, hello, my name is Addie. I'm nine years old and I just wanted to ask you this. What if my colors look different than yours? Like what if my blue is your pink? Definitely not your daddy, Addie. (laughs) Thanks, Addie. Good one. The, we don't, I don't think that we actually know. We don't know, no. Whether or not my blue is your pink. Well, we I, we kind of know, right? Because we understand the way. So, Addie, the way that we see color is that certain colors are. Hank's going to explain to you how we see color, Addie. <laughs> so, so light wiggles, and it can wiggle different. Yep. And uh, and and, and colors are just the diff are, are just like light that has different wavelengths. So, different amounts of wiggles between uh, physical points. So, like more ups and downs in an inch, which is wild that this is how it works. But that's what color that is. That's how it works. And so what we do know, Addie, is that when light shines with those different wavelengths, with a different number of wiggles in, in the same section of space, that's how we see color. And we know that all of our eyes that see color see color in fairly similar ways. And so we can presume that when you see the yeah. color blue, I also see the color blue. Well, we can presume that, like, you both see a color blue. Right. But there but, is like, some variation. But, like, is it exactly the same? We don't know. Like, there's, yeah. But my blue is not your pink. My blue just might be your different blue. Yeah, probably. But there isn't a way to actually know this because we cannot experience each other's perception. Yeah, Addy, one of the super weird things about being a person is that the whole time that you're here, you're inside of one consciousness, you know, like you can only see the world out out of your eyes, which is really, really weird. And you are right to be like, whoa, this is weird. And this is a great question uh, as a way to ask that question. Yeah. Um, and but it is not limited to color. It's limited to everything. Does does pain feel the same to all people? Mm-hmm. Seems like it, right? Um, but we don't we don't have any evidence. We like we don't we don't have a way to prove that. We just have lots of indications that it is the case. Does love feel the same for all people? Does does a flower smell the same to all people? Um, does an ice cream cone taste the same? Yeah, I we mean, don't know for sure. And and we definitely know that people have like we can tell. That there are cases where people do have different senses. Specifically, taste is like a one that that definitely has variations, and that people can taste things differently. And, uh, yeah. and there, there's there is reason why some people don't like some tastes, and some people aren't right. capable of smelling certain smells. Some people aren't capable of smelling at all. Yeah. Oh my gosh, what a world! So, yeah, the world is is complicated and and messy, and you can only see it out of your eyes. But when it comes to trying to understand what it looks like from other people's eyes, the best way that we have invented so far is listening. 
yeah. and trying to pay attention to what other people tell you and believing them, believing that their experience is real to them. John. Which reminds me that today's podcast is brought oh to gosh, you, Patty, by the fact that we are stuck inside of just this one flesh sack for the whole time we're here. <laughs> This podcast is also brought to you by the infinite number of wheels I am imagining right now. Boom. Done. Argument settled. Except that this podcast is additionally brought to you by the infinite number of doors that I am imagining right now. Boom. Unsettled. <laughs> we also have a Project for Awesome message from Sarah Bacher, who says, Thank you for your kindness and support after a plane hit my house on August 17th, 2019. Your care package was incredibly considerate and means the world to my sister and I. My sister Hannah is an 85% second and third degree burn survivor. She's graduating from University of Buffalo in civil engineering soon. And while we lost everything in the fire, including my dad and our pets, and still have no answers. After a year and a half of being homeless during a pandemic, we managed to buy a home and reunite the surviving family members and pets. I'm helping fight COVID as a medical technologist despite my PTSD, and we struggle, but we manage one day at a time with both physical and emotional scars. This community taught me how to give back, so we raised money for the Ronald McDonald House of GHV and the NYBC. I still go to Aglo, New York to reflect and will always give thanks to all who helped me and my family. Aglo sends its love and its regards. Please stay safe in more ways than just COVID. Free. I love you all. Thank you, Sarah. That is so kind. I really appreciate that update. Um, and thank you for donating to the Project for Awesome. Yeah. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Trobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one -one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. So listen, your toilet is massively gross, like it's grosser than you think. In fact, bacteria and viruses can hang around in the toilet bowl even after multiple flushes. And I recently found the easiest way to clean my toilet, Blue Land's Sustainable Toilet Cleaner Tablets. Just drop, watch it fizz, brush, and flush. It is truly that simple. No more scrubbing for hours. Plus, the tablets are plastic-free. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and for the planet 
with the same powerful clean that you're used to. Blue Land products are effective and affordable, and their toilet tablets are proven to work on a wide range of toilet stains, including rust, mineral deposits, lime scale, and hard water. And you can even get more savings by buying refills in bulk or setting up a subscription. Blue Land has a special offer for our listeners. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss this blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. That's blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. All right, Hank, let's answer another question. This one's from Ashlyn, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I just scored my first ever full-time job. I'm going to be an administrative assistant. I am thrilled, but it's only day two, and I realize that my upper arm is in pain from using this computer mouse. I haven't used a desktop Mm. regularly since I was in middle school, and I've only used laptop touchpads. Am I just weak? Like, am I holding my arm out too far? How do I office (laughs) correctly? It's not Wednesday. (sighs) Ashlyn. That's a good Ash Wednesday joke, Ashlyn. I feel like I have made my whole body in service of the use of this mouse. Oh, do you still use a mouse? Oh, yeah. All what right. You well, then you can answer this question with some expertise. I was going to say. Do you just trackpad? Yeah, I was going to tell, tell Ashlyn to just tell work like, hey, I need a trackpad. This is ridiculous. It's 2022. I mean, you can do that. Yeah, you can, you can absolutely do that. And uh, and they, I think. And if you're would, in pain, they're more or less required to fix that. Yeah, it's also true. Um, but in general, it is uh, it is a very normal thing for people to ask for equipment. And if it if you say if, if it will increase productivity, it will be totally worth it, um, as well as the right thing to do. So um, I have no idea, uh, but I do know that like my back doesn't feel great, and it's probably like and specifically on the side that I constantly use my mouse on. So wow. I'm probably the wrong person to uh, to answer this question. Yeah, um, but I I am uh, a mouse user. Do you not like sit at a desk with a keyboard and a mouse? Nope. Do you sit at a desk with a computer? Do you have a desktop? I don't have a desktop. And I don't sit wow. at the desk except when I'm recording Dear wow. Hank and John. Oh, my God. That's that's mind-blowing to me. I just sit in a chair and I put my laptop on my lap. I got a whole situation here. I know. Sometimes I see your whole situation and I'm like, that looks like he's probably much more productive than I am. But I like <laughs> to be able to stand up and sit in a different chair. <laughs> like, mm. Yeah, no. That's, uh, that's, not on, that's not on my list of things that I've even ever imagined. Oh, it's great. I haven't had a desk with a chair since 2006. Man, Ashlyn, well, here's what I got to say. This is your one chance to get it right the first time. And don't don't make the same mistakes I did, which is that I haven't ever thought about it. And so now yeah. uh, I'm co- constantly have shoulder and back pain. Um, so so go talk to uh, go to some website that will give you better advice than I could possibly give you as a person who has done this wrong the whole time. Correct. There you go. This next question comes from Darcy, who asks, Dear Hank and John, why are Dalmatians firefighters dogs of choice? Arrive, Darcy. Do you know the story of this? Dalmatians? Yeah. I got, well, I got, I got some information on it, but I feel like you got more information than I do because I didn't know there was a story. Oh, so the narrative is is astonishing. Okay. In the 1800s, the 
in the early uh-huh. 1800s when public fire departments were becoming a bigger and bigger deal. Like we were in Boston over the weekend and we actually wa- walked past a fire department that was from the early 1800s. And on the side of the building, it said this fire department has been erected by the people of Boston to combat the scourge of fire, like as a way of acknowledging that fire was a public health catastrophe, really, Mm -hmm. and that we needed a sort of shared public government-based response to it. And in the early 1800s, when firefighters were deciding what their dog was going to be, there was a contest where a series of dog breeds were asked to perform all different kinds of tasks related to supportive firefighting. I don't know if I believe you. And the Dalmatian won, and it was Mm. a big big national story. Front page of New York Times, you know, right. the, the Dalmatian is the firefighter of the future. I'm so why, – why don't I believe you? God. Thought I did a great job by setting it up with something true. That, that I felt – that I was all in for. Oh. Was... I've, I, I, I'm trying to do a thing now where I try to trick you where I, I ground it in something that's so – That's the thing. That's what you got to do. That's really true. And very Like we were in Boston yeah. this weekend. I did see that sign. And then I try to extend it out and I try to like roll through the part that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that was the, that was the main thing. I think I might have overset it up so that yeah. you're like your hackles were raised, as the children like to say. It, it may, maybe yeah. something. It felt like it. It felt like it shifted from something really concrete to something really. Uh, mm. so, yeah, I feel like okay. the shift was too great. Right. Okay. But do you do you want to know the actual reason? Yeah, but I'm got I got to work on my fake story while you're thinking about it. Yeah, what's okay. the actual reason? Okay. Um, Dalmatians uh, were noticed to run like run alongside of horses. Um, and they started to actually train Dalmatians to do this to protect the. And this now that I'm saying this, it sounds fake. This is true. The, the Dalmatians were trained to run alongside of horses when horses were pulling carriages to scare off other dogs that might scare the horses. So the horses were comfortable with these specific dogs, and they would allow um, the horses to. And they could keep up with the horses. They just ran alongside and basically protected the horses from things that might scare the horses, which would be dangerous. Um, and then as that trans- transitioned to uh, firefighters having their equipment being pulled by horses, Dalmatians came along with them. As that transitioned out of needing horses to be involved at all, they kept the Dalmatians. Wow. That does sound fake. It sounds fake. It sounds very Especially fake. Especially when you started off with a fake thing. I think my story is actually more compelling. <laughs> yeah, well, more yeah. More believable. That's, that's the case oftentimes with fake things. Oh, Hank. Yeah. Speaking of fake things. Yeah. Did I tell you about my extremely minor contribution to the history of the world? No. Hank, maybe the coolest thing that has ever happened in my entire career happened last week. (laughs) So when I was writing the Anthropocene-reviewed book, I was writing about Staphylococcus aureus, this bacteria that causes a lot of human suffering. And I wrote about the first person who was ever treated with a – who had a life-threatening illness who was ever treated with penicillin. It was a police officer in England named Albert Alexander in 1941. 
And the story, and I read this story in all, all these medical journals and everything, the story was that Albert Alexander was pruning one of his rose bushes in his prize rose garden when he got a cut on his mm-hmm. face that resulted in the staph infection, and then he had to get penicillin. Now, unfortunately, did there he like was— prune, Did he, like, prune himself in the face? Exactly. Great question. So, unfortunately, Albert Alexander died of this infection. He, after receiving penicillin, he got much, much better, but there wasn't enough penicillin in the Mm. world at the time to even treat one person. Um, And so the infection returned and he died. Penicillin is so recent that his daughter is still alive. She is in the United States. Uh, She's a painter. And this this story that he was like cut by a rose bush and that led to this staph infection it's believable in the sense that very small scratches could be fatal back then but it just didn't make sense to me like it's so metaphorically resonant like killed <laughs> by a beautiful rose that i was like it's uh-huh. this seems a little much you know and also i couldn't find any good sourcing for it like all the sources were referring to each other and then finally yeah. i found a first person account by the daughter who was like, my dad was working as a police officer in England during the Blitz, and he was injured by shrapnel. And and that's how he got this infection. And so that's the story that I used in the Anthropocene Reviewed book because it was the only first-person account that I could find. A medical historian reads the Anthropocene Reviewed book and is like, that's not the story. That's not the story I've always heard. And then last week, he published like a 5,000-word authoritative account of what actually happened to Albert Alexander. It turns out that he was injured in the Blitz. When the bombing was, that, that where he was injured, what happened, everything. And this little tiny piece of history has been changed. You did it, John. Well, I didn't do it. The, the historian did it. <laughs> but work, work I, was done. I contributed in a small way. And it just makes me so excited and happy. The article is called Guns Not Roses, Chef's Kiss of a, of a title. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And it's written by Bill Sullivan, who's a professor of pharmacology and toxicology. So cool. That is super cool. I mean, terrible, yeah. obviously, but also so cool. Um, That's... I mean, we like we run into stuff like that quite frequently in our work oh, yeah. where we come across something that's just like, this is great. It's a great story. And there's a lot of articles about it, yep. but they all point to each other. Right. It's just like a big circle yep. of people saying that they, th- it came from here. Right. And uh, I, I, I've i tried to get to the bottom of some of those and, and you end up six hours in and like this, I can't, I can't. Well, the classic one is this Margaret Mead quote about how the first sign of the truest sign of civilization is a healed femur in the fossil record because that means that mm, a, a yeah. human had to take care of another human. Yeah. And you see that everywhere. You oh, see yeah. it in all kinds of books, all kinds of journal articles. Oh, my God. Not only did Margaret Mead never say that, it is in stark contrast to what Margaret Mead actually believed about oh, no. civilization and about pre-civil—I mean, what Margaret Mead knew to be true about so-called pre-civilizational people, which is that there were often healed femurs in the fossil record because humans have been taking care of other humans since way before agriculture. Yeah, and also, like, there are healed deer femurs in the fossil record. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Some, some, sometimes you yeah, figure like it sometimes out. Just, yeah. yeah. Sometimes people figure out a way to make it work. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Um, John, you have another question? What do we got? What are we doing? Yeah. I got another question for you. Okay. 
This question comes from Floyd, who writes, Dear John and Hank, do astronauts ever eat normal food? Like, I've seen those packets of dehydrated astronaut food, but do they actually eat that stuff? Like, I get that it could be useful because it takes up less space and it's really light and whatever, and there's a long shelf life. But do they ever get normal food, too? Not pink. Floyd, what a great question. I have no idea. Um, I think that they can sometimes get a little bit of normal food, but it is a special occasion type of thing. In Oy. fact, um, uh, on in the Apollo missions, one of the, I don't remember what it was, was like a corned beef sandwich or a pastrami on rye, but like one of the astronauts smuggled a sandwich on... And and it became it was like a problem because like there were crumbs, the crumbs got all over the place. It smelled really strong, and the other astronauts were kind of pissed off at him. So, uh, oh, so God. the Apollo missions were full of like people being like uh, just uh, maybe not taking the <laughs> take taking the mission as seriously as as they could have. But now I think that like, so almost all of their food is, uh, you know, it has to be reheated for sure. Like they're not cooking up there. You can't cook in space. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons you have to have the food be prepared. And then, um, so you, you they, they're heating it up and basically, uh, it's not a microwave, but it's a fancy oven and it's often rehydrated because you don't want to like, it's just heavy. Water is heavy. They have water on the space station. They sort of want to keep those things separate. So they bring the, the the food up without water in it. But there's oftentimes there's like also stuff that's fairly normal. Like tor- they use tortillas a lot, for example, because they don't have a lot of crumbs and they don't have a lot of water weight. They have some, but, you know, astronauts are constantly like spreading stuff on tortillas. So it depends on what you mean. There's plenty of normal-ish food, though. That sounds like regular food yeah. to me. That's that's my lunch most days is Stuff, spreading spread on some a tortilla. Yeah, peanut butter or cheese on a tortilla. You, spreading cheese? Yeah, you know, spreadable cheese. Well, I guess you don't spread it so much as you melt it. Okay, that's fine. I mean, hey, if you were spreading cheese, that'd be fine. Just cheese whizzing it up on that tortilla and then like smoosh it around no i can never sounds delicious i can never use spreadable cheese ever again for the rest of my life because of all the times i had to interact with the spreadable cheese machine at steak and shake (laughs) 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 like you know like people would order chili mac or whatever and i'd have to like pump out the cheese and (laughs) and then like yeah when you have to clean out the cheese machine and replace it with new pumpable cheese it does not it It lives long in the memory, Hank. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am still on board with spreadable cheese, and uh, though I don't have the opportunity that often. Well, yeah. I, I do, and I, I just don't take it. This question comes from Elijah, who writes, Dear John and Hank, sitting in this third-floor classroom, turning the complexities of linear algebra over in my head, I find myself looking out the window and seeing a sprinkler watering a grass soccer field. And doing so, I noticed an everyday phenomenon that perplexes me. The sprinkler casts mm. a shadow, but water generally is clear. We can oh. see it, so it's obviously not completely clear. But still, how does moving water cast a shadow? If this water were to sit in a clear tank, any shadows it casted would be negligible, right? I appreciate any illumination you can provide on this matter. Support your favorite nonprofit, Elijah. It's a it's a profit Elijah uh, joke. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have got there. The the so so the sprinkler in question is not the actual physical. Right. It's the water that is being right. sprinkled is yes. casting a shadow. The 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 reason 
Uh, if so, if you, so, if you had a large sphere of water, it actually would cast a kind of shadow, not because it is, um, not because it's blocking the the light rays, but because it is moving them. So the the it basically each individual little piece of water being sprinkled by that sprinkler is a little lens, and it's diffracting the water in all kinds of directions. So effectively, all of the area around the shadow is a little bit brighter. And the area in the shadow is a little mm. bit darker, because the not the not that the a little bit of the light, but all, most of the light isn't being absorbed; it is being uh, refracted mm. elsewhere, and so you get that that effect where you, it looks like there's a shadow, wow. but that light is ending up on the ground somewhere else, or it's being reflected from inside of the drop and being shined up into the sky. Cool. Well, there you go. Go back to linear algebra now, Elijah. <laughs> Well, it might might come in handy if you actually want to do the calculations for how that uh, that is actually happening because optics is a pain in my butt. Oh, it's John, so complicated. What is the news from AFC Wimbledon? All right, so here's the, here's how desperate the situation has become, Hank. Uh, last week, I got uh, a message from somebody uh-huh. who works at AFC Wimbledon oh, wow. who said, "Hey, uh, can you make a video for the boys?" <laughs> So I did. I did. I made the best motivational video I could make. Um, Uh I spent half a day on it. I worked really hard on it. It's all about how spring is coming and how, you know, when you're in the depths of winter, you feel like it'll never be spring, but spring comes anyway. And Uh spring is coming for AFC Wimbledon. And I tried to be as fire. I tried to just channel my inner Ted Lasso and go full fire. How did they, did they, did they play, have they played a game since then? They have. Yeah. Um, they lost. We don't, we don't, we don't need to talk about it. <laughs> they lost, they lost two nil. Um, mm. it did give us the occasion to sing my very favorite soccer chant. You're nothing special. We lose every week. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Uh, which lately we do. And yet somehow, some way there continue to be Barely, but there continue to be four teams that are worse than us. Um, AFC Wimbledon have lost. Well, we haven't won a game in 2022, and it it ain't the beginning of the year. It's been a really, really, really difficult time. I do not have a lot of confidence that we can stay up. Um, Yeah. Certainly, if we keep playing like this, we won't. There are eight games left in the... 2022 League One season, and we need to win some of them. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely the most. I don't know. I mean, every every year at this time of the, the season, I'm really worried. But usually, I see yeah. glimmers of hope, and at the moment, I uh-huh. just don't. If I'm being honest, like it seems like it could happen, but it's going to be luck if it happens. I mean, one year we were. We would have definitely been relegated if the season hadn't stopped because of COVID. So we've certainly, mm. I mean, I don't know yeah, if it, it's was... correct to call anything associated with COVID luck. But um, yeah, certainly Wimbledon have been in this situation before if there is a comfort. In fact, we've been in it every flipping season for the last five years. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. We've got to turn it around, though. Um, and I'm I'm sorry that my motivational talk didn't do it. We've got to find a way, though. What if you get mm-hmm. now stick with me? Yeah. 
uh, Ronaldo <laughs> to come and play for AFC Wimbledon. Nah, not interested. He plays at Manchester United. I don't want any of those people. Um, <laughs> maybe Mo Salah, though, could like go out on loan for, for yeah, six weeks. Because we're really yeah. struggling in front of goals. So if we what just. About like, uh, what about somebody who's retired? They were really yeah. good, but they retired. Sure. Bring back so, like David Beckham or Pele. Yeah. I, I'd take, I'd take Pele 79 year old Pele at this point. <laughs> yeah. He's still got an eye for goal. He's a finisher. He doesn't. Yeah, we just put him up front and we say, listen, stay where you are. You're going to be off sides most of the time, but we don't need you to be on the sides most we'll get of the it, time. We'll get it there. We'll bring it up. We'll get it up past you. And then you go. Stand at the top of the box and wait, and we will get the ball to you once or twice a game and then shoot. Uh, he is 81 years old. That might I mean, be a problem. I would take him in a flash. <laughs> This is a bunch of 17-year-olds in Pele. <laughs> we've got we've got one adult. Pele. <laughs> so this week in Mars news, uh the Mars Ingenuity helicopter. I mean, not the I guess it's the Mars Ingenuity helicopter. It's been flying around Mars for almost a year now. Yeah. It is still going. Yeah. It just wrapped up its 21st flight. Wow. It's flown more than 4.6 kilometers. Wow. And uh, and it is doing it is actually now doing work. So it was like in in the beginning, it was like, let's just make sure this thing works. And if it works, that's going to be the mission. Like we're going to be like, hey, we did it. Mm-hmm. That, congratulations, everybody. Mission success. Mm-hmm. But they did have some sep- secondary objectives. And the big one was like, could this thing be helpful for scouting with a little bit more detail than we can get from space where we want the uh, Perseverance rover to go, and it's doing that work. And scientists have estimated that this has saved um, some like significant amount of time uh, for the rover, so that it isn't making scientists aren't here on Earth like making complicated decisions. They have more data and can make the decisions faster. Um, and uh, the Perseverance rover is now headed to the remains of a river delta, where um, the helicopter is going to continue uh, helping it figure out where on this river delta it best wants to go. The uh, here on here on Earth, deltas are very good at preserving carbon-containing organic chemicals, and Ingenuity will be helping Perseverance find paths and rocks on its own hunt for similar compounds. So, it seems like Ingenuity is as good as new, running smoothly, wow. no damage, and that's exciting given that it was made with a lot of commercial off-the-shelf parts. Uh, that didn't have to be like customized specifically for a Mars mission. So that's super cool and kind of surprising. And we're very happy. Is it still like in terms of battery life, pretty similar to what it was at the beginning? Like, can it fly as far as it used to be able to fly? I bet it's changed a little bit. Um, You know, the battery has to be charged up uh, by a solar panel and then discharged. And so, there's definitely going to be wear on that system. But, you know, got enough juice that it can get up in the sky still. So feeling good about that. That's so cool. It's so exciting to think that we could, like, scan the surface of Mars with all these little helicopters and find the cool places to visit. I just love that idea. Yeah. And, you know, in the future, maybe we can use it to, like, grab stuff and bring it back or do other work. Yeah. Ah, we're going to get some humans onto that planet, Hank. We're going to live to see it. It's just not going to happen before this podcast gets renamed Dear John and Hank. Uh, fingers crossed. 
for either outcome. John, we're off to record our patron-only podcast this week in stuff, which you can get at patreon.com slash something. Dear Hank and John? Dear Hank and John. (laughs) (laughs) This week in stuff is a good perk. I have to say, by far the best perk is that you get access to the monthly live streams that Hank and I do for Mm. Patreon supporters, which are real raw, real unvarnished, (laughs) true... True Blue Hank and John, patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. I love, I also love the bonus podcast, which comes out once a week and we're about to go record it. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. The editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't forget to be, be awesome. awesome.